Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I'm going to do a story that I have studied forever and been following for years. As most people, I've been so on the fence about Darlie Routier. That's right. Now, before I jump into it, I just want to thank you guys so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. If you'd like to see more videos, footage, and clips of these crimes, just go to Storytime Slayer on Facebook or Story underscore Time underscore Slayer on Instagram. You can also email me at storytimepods at gmail.com. And please feel free to email me. I love getting emails from people. Also, if you are listening on Apple, please leave a review, preferably five stars, but honesty is always the best policy and whatever you think I earned, I'll take it. Let's get started. So a lot of people are familiar with Darlie Routier. It's been such a controversial case because she was charged with the death penalty and she was charged on completely circumstantial evidence. And it's so shocking to a lot of people that she was even charged and that her husband was not. The attack on Darlie and her two sons occurred June 6th. 1996 and the call to 911 was placed at 2:31 in the morning by Darlie Routier herself. She was calling from Rowlett, which is a suburb of Dallas, and she was frantic. She was calling for help saying that her and her boys had been stabbed and her sons were literally dying. She kept saying, "My babies, my babies, they're dying." Partway through the call, Darlie realized she too had been attacked and was bleeding from her throat and her arm. And then she also told the dispatcher that she had found a knife and the dispatcher said not to touch anything, but Darlie had said, I already touched it. Oh my goodness. And mentioned that she could have disturbed fingerprints. So I'm actually going to play the 911 call for you guys. And that way you can kind of get your own opinion of it. Ma'am, 
did shorten that 911 call because the original call is five minutes long. And I can tell you what's odd is in most of the accounts of this case, they say that police arrived on the scene three minutes within the 911 call. But we can definitely tell that from the time she actually got a hold of a dispatcher, it was about five minutes until they walked through the door. Now, Darley told the police that when she'd woken up from her son pressing on her shoulder, she saw an intruder going out the back of the home through to the garage door and then into the garage and through a window, presumably through a window because there was a cut screen later found. She did not actually see the perpetrator go out the window, I do not believe. Now, she did run after him as in she ran through her living room out to where she saw him go into the garage. After this, um, with this information, the officer cleared the area for a possible intruder. He was afraid that they may have still been in the home, but nobody was. Darren was performing CPR on one child, but the wounds to the children were really significant. The boys had actually been stabbed with so much force that the knife reached the ground below both of them. So when Darren tried breathing in to perform CPR on his son, blood was literally just seeping out of all the little boy's wounds in his chest. Now, Darley is said to have stayed on the phone with 911 operator explaining what happened rather than helping her sons, which it did sound like. And I'm not telling you that because I think this makes her guilty. I just think it's incredibly odd and it is worth mentioning. Now, her sons were six-years-old Devin and five-year-old Damon. Darley also had injuries to herself. Now, some classify these injuries as life-threatening, and some classify them as not life-threatening and actually think that they were self-inflicted, although they would have had to have been self-inflicted with the opposite hand to which she writes with, you know. Now, she had a deep laceration across her neck, and it was only two millimeters away from cutting through her carotid artery and killing her. She also had a slice on her arm to the bone, but the cut on her throat was so bad that she was actually taken to the hospital by ambulance and had to have immediate surgery. She was, however, released from the hospital after only two days. One of her boys was dead before the paramedics arrived. In fact, one of her boys was dead before her husband even made it down the stairs, he said. And the other boy died en route to the hospital. So what happened? This is a crazy case. So Darley and her husband, Darren, had three boys together. Devin, who was seven, Damon, who was five, and Drake, who was seven months old. They clearly have a theme here. They're all D names. So it's Texas. It's summer. It's hot. Darley and the boys, Damon and Devin, are going to have a sleepover in the living room. Apparently, Darley had been having trouble sleeping upstairs because, for one, 
Drake still had his bed set up in their room. So that kind of woke her up at night. And then for two, it was really hot and it's hotter upstairs. So she didn't sleep very well up there. So she just popped popcorn for her and the boys. And she actually got cozy on the couch in just an oversized white t-shirt while the boys were on the ground in, I presume, sleeping bags or pallets that they made. And the three of them were going to watch a movie and have like just a little slumber party in the living room. Baby Drake was in bed and Darren went to sleep around 11 p.m. He said he says close after the 10 o'clock news ended sometime shortly before the 911 call was placed at 2:30, Darley's account said that she felt pressure on her shoulder and was being woken up by Damon. He was pushing on her and saying, mommy. Now she woke and she saw a man going through their house to the back garage door. She followed him through a door into the garage where she found a knife that she actually picked up. She went back into the living room to find Damon and Devin dying shortly after realizing she too had been attacked. Sometime during this walkthrough and realization of what was going on, Darley broke a cup. I believe by accident she knocked it over or something. And then she screamed for Darren panicking before she called 911. Darren's account is that he first heard a glass break far away and then he heard Darley screaming frantically. He ran downstairs where he saw Devin with gashes all over him and he's just yelling his name and he's yelling his name but he's already dead. He'd been stabbed two times in the chest and Damon who was still alive had been stabbed four times. He went to help Damon and blood was just seeping out of the poor boy's body. He was trying to help the children when he heard Darley on the phone screaming bits and pieces of what happened to the 911 operator. Police officer said he came in and there was a bunch of blood by the entry door when the police came in. Darren was trying to administer help to Damon and Darley was on the phone screaming that an intruder had come in and stabbed them. If I'm not mistaken... Pardon me, because this is an extremely talked about case for decades. I've followed it for years, and I've heard a lot of information about it. But I think Darren then went to go get a neighbor who was a nurse, possibly for help whenever the police arrived, because CPR was obviously not helping and paramedics weren't there yet. And it's repeated a lot by crime scene techs and officers that Darley was on the phone away from her boys and not trying to help them or comfort them. Obviously, this is probably one of the reasons why they pegged her guilty so quickly early on. So I do think it's worth noting that her behavior seemed odd, that she wasn't really trying to help at all. Once the victims were cleared, including Darley, police began peeping around and they immediately found inconsistencies in Darley's story of an intruder. And there are several reasons why. And because of this, they almost immediately formed the opinion that Darley was guilty. I mean, they'll tell you that. Investigators say that. Like, they immediately thought it was her. They said, for one, it wasn't a high crime area, especially for random intruders. It wasn't an easy neighborhood to access. And the point of entry to which the intruder came into their home did not really make sense to the police officers. And they said the area did not seem disturbed. Now, the intruder also did not bring their own weapon and it is believed that the knife used to not only kill the routiers children, but also to cut through the screen came from the routier kitchen. So after a walkthrough, the investigators found it suspicious that this could be a home invasion. It didn't really seem like one because nothing had been taken either. 
Darlie was one of those women. She always had a lot of gaudy rings on and jewelry and they were all real. And she had all of her hand rings by the back door or I say the back door. I don't know why she had all of her gaudy rings on the kitchen counter and they were undisturbed as well. The intruder didn't even bother to pick them up on the way out. So Secondly, was the weapons were used from the Rudier home. Now, I've covered other inside jobs that were proven to be um, a relative or a close person and not an intruder. And these weapons also came from inside the home of the victims. Like, who forgets to bring a weapon to a damn murder, especially if you're randomly attacking a stranger? And why stop at Darley? Why not actually kill her? Why use such brute force on the children and not finish off Darley? These were all the investigators' red flags that made them immediately kind of circle around Darley. So Darley was released from the hospital after only two days. I think this is because her sons were about to be buried together and that they wanted to be present for the funeral and the viewing and all that together. I just can't imagine such life-threatening injuries being able to leave the hospital so soon, but I also don't know the typical recovery time, blah, blah, blah. I did read in Hush Little Babies, Darlie's good friend and maid of honor actually found Darlie's behavior to be really concerning, and the things that she was worried about were kind of weird. She said that Darlie was embarrassed the police would find sex toys in her house, which is a really dumb thing to worry about. And she realized Darlie did not shed a single tear about the boys while she was visiting her in the hospital after her surgery. So that was immediately after this awful thing happened. Darlie and Darren had no idea that Darlie was a suspect. So this made them like the most cooperative suspects ever. They returned days later. First of all, when they left the hospital, they immediately went and made a statement to police and they were there for hours. They then returned days later to the hospital and to the police to show them how bruised Darlie's arm had been from the attack. And it is true, her arm was extremely bruised. I mean, it was like black, but uh, it's so hard because I do think it takes some force to keep a child still and silent after the first stab. Maybe Darlie did bruise herself using such force. Uh, But she also could get that from fighting off an attacker because she came in days later. A lot of people actually theorize that maybe Darren bruised her up to help her with her defense. I don't know what it proved either way. It's inconclusive evidence. The door swings both ways with it, unfortunately. Over the next couple days, the couple would actually talk to the police several times for hours out of the time. The routiers have no idea that they're suspects still and They give Darren a lie detector test, which should have told him he was a suspect. He actually failed it. And he'll tell you that he failed it because they were trying to make him fail. They were poking the bear and trying to get a rise out of him, he says. Now, I don't know how true that is. Apparently, when someone's doing a lie detector, it's obviously based on things like your heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen level, things like that. And so you can't be argumentative or provoke somebody during a lie detector test, especially as the administrator, because it will elevate those things and you won't really know if the person's lying or if they're simply worked up from arguing with you. So Darren did fail it, but the police still didn't really use anything from his polygraph. They don't, I don't even know what he failed in it. So I really don't know how true it is that he failed it because police have given very little information about it. 
if that makes sense. I think it was probably just inconclusive. Lie detector tests don't really hold up anyway. So, days after the murder, the boys were laid to rest. 400 people attended the funeral. And they were actually in the same casket holding hands. Then eight days following the murder, Damon was to have his seventh birthday. They had already completely planned the birthday party and invited all the neighborhood kids and kids from school previously. Now, because Devin passed away so close to the birthday party, they decided they were going to have a memorial and celebration of life at his graveside. Investigators did something very illegal. They bugged the graveside with audio recording, which is an invasion of privacy at a gravesite. Now, they also took video surveillance, which I don't think is an invasion of privacy. They were hoping they could get a graveside confession, which sounds so dramatic and very Lifetime movie to me. Get it together. So, the family apparently had a couple hour-long memorial ceremony. It was very emotionally charged. Everyone was crying, weeping. And then at the very end... There is a 15-second clip that will probably haunt Darlie Rudiere the rest of her life. It is her and her sister and other people, but she's recorded smiling, laughing, dancing, and actually spraying silly string in this 15-second clip. Apparently, what happened is Damon loved silly string. This was in the 2020 special, Last Offense. So Darlie's sister is the one who brought the silly string, supposedly. And she was like, hey, guys, you know, let's just take a minute to not be sad and really celebrate Damon on his birthday. Just something fun and lighthearted. And that's the story behind why they're laughing and dancing and smiling and spraying silly string. A week after Damon was brutally murdered. Okay. So the clip was very damning. I even find the clip damning because, you know, Darlie's wearing a fitted shirt, a short blue jean shorts. You can see her uh, surgery mark still. She's chewing gum like nobody's business, smiling, carrying on. Eight days after her sons are murdered. And then her and Darren following this celebration for Damon's birthday, they actually invited the media and then agreed to do an interview this is crazy. I read this book. It's called Hush Little Babies, The True Story of a Mother Who Murdered Her Own Children. And in it, they actually kind of transcribe this interview. And I'm just going to paraphrase and get to the point. But during the interview, Darren and Darley immediately took to defending who they themselves were to the public. Like they started telling people, you know, we don't do drugs. We don't have marriage problems, no history of abuse, anything like that. Darren chimes in about the boys and talks about how good of kids they were and how him and Darley tried to teach them right. And then Darley cuts in and she says everything was equal and that the boys didn't see the color of people's skin. I don't know. I don't know. Just like the whole thing is so weird to me. Their demeanor, the statements are fucking weird. And then they suggest that they were picked because they were more fortunate than other people. Okay. I mean, now it's days following this that Darlie is arrested. So I'm going to tell you how the arrest went down. It, it is so shysty. Darren and Darlie had agreed to come in and speak with police again. 
this is the second time I think that they're going to speak to the investigators in a formal interview setting in the police station. Now, when I say they spoke to investigators, I mean like they would speak for several hours at a time. So at this point, they have Darren and Darley's statements from the night of the crime, the 911 call, the couple's statements at the hospital, and then their statements from the last time they came down to the police department immediately following the hospital, and now this time. They take all these statements and look for inconsistencies in the couple's stories and anything they say can be backed up by evidence, right? So if they could find evidence of like maybe a man attacking her or somebody in the house. An inconsistency in Darley's story was that first she said she woke up to a man attacking her, fought him off and chased him out where he dropped the knife and she picked it up. Later, the story changed and has never wavered again, but she then says now she was woken up from pressure on her shoulder and it was her son pressing on her saying, mommy, mommy, mommy. And when she saw a man at the end of the couch, she chased him out. Anyway, both accounts though, she actually sleeps through the physical attack or just simply does not remember it. She's being woken up by an attacker and her son are two totally different things. So that, for one, does stand out to me. The day Darley was arrested, police actually asked just Darren to ride with them to the routier home for a walkthrough of what happened that night. This is before she was arrested. So Darren just thinks that they're going to the house again for a routine walkthrough just to clear them further. When Darren was at the house, he kind of felt like the police officers weren't even really listening to him during the walkthrough. And then he got a call from Darley's mom informing him that the news was saying Darley was being arrested for the murder of one of her sons. Darren was shook. He was um, taken out of the station so they could arrest Darley. I know my husband will be so upset too. On top of that, he's not even in his own car, so he can't just jump in his car and leave. And the state also put their baby Drake in DHS custody because the fear was that Darley would get out on bond and nobody would protect baby Drake if she was a crazed killer. Darren immediately asked investigators to drive him back to the station, and they did, and he was incredibly upset. So, why did they arrest Darley? Investigators never believed an intruder was in the home because they just thought it was so unlikely. And that is also because the theory was not backed by any evidence in the crime scene. For one, after you walk through the home, there's no bloodstains on the couch where Darley would have been lying and struggling during her attack via when they cut her throat and her arm to the bone. There was no blood or blood evidence in the garage around the entry or exit point in the garage window seal frame, nothing. These were just reasons why they were arresting and charging her initially. The prosecution would further build their case and it's pretty strong circumstantial evidence. So they go to court. Darley is not released on bond and she was going to be charged with the murder of her son. They only charged her with one son because if something went wrong, they could always come back and charge her for the murder of her other child. 
and that way they could avoid the double jeopardy. The news went wild for this story. A reporter actually snuck into the police department once and they got lucky. A door just happened to be open. They got in there, snooped around, found the case file. Fortunately, someone stopped them soon enough. But that night on the 10 o'clock news was a development of the Rudier case. The news was saying that cocaine was found in the Rudier home. This wasn't true, though. It was only a small amount of weed that was found at the Rudier home. So before I get to the trial, I want to address something about this case that I have mulled over in my mind over and over and over. Why was Darren not treated as a suspect the way Darley was? And I think a lot of that is because Darley actually told investigators that she saw the attacker. She said he was a white male wearing a dark baseball cap, denim jeans, and a black t-shirt. So if this was Darren, she would definitely have to be covering for him and have some serious involvement in the crime, right? And then why would he attack Darley and leave baby Drake asleep? None of it just makes sense. Her, It's just weird. So honestly, people bring up baby Drake a lot. Drake was only nine months old when this crime took place. And, you know, I think sometimes with babies and chemically imbalanced mothers small babies are like puppies to some women especially if they experience postpartum or a chemical imbalance you know they're cute they're sweet they're small they're needy but they grow up so I don't think it's odd for an obviously crazy person to spare the baby I I know that's so weird to say but here we are Darley's trial began January 6, 1997. I'm going to cover all the highlights and key information from her trial. She would be the seventh woman sentenced to death in Texas if she was convicted. They tried to first get a change of venue, and they were anticipating they could get moved to Dallas. But they got moved to another small town in Texas called Kerrville. Not long before the Darley Rudier case was the Susan Smith case. I covered this in an episode called Killer Moms. She is the one who pushed her car into a pond and said that a black man had robbed her car and done it. This was national headlines and then she confessed eight days later, I think, or it was within days of the crime that she confessed she was the one who did it. And so this really left an imprint in the public so when another mom murdered or was accused of murdering her child everyone was like oh my gosh we got another susan smith we got another susan smith that was another thing looming over the darley rudier case a lot of comparison and a lot of just instantly like oh my god she did it another killer mom life insurance is said to be a possible motive but the issue with this is that the boys had like a ten thousand dollar policy and that supposedly didn't even cover their funeral costs and i gotta agree here they were living above their means and i don't think 10 grand was something they were that desperate for i think darley could have gotten eight hundred thousand if she only killed darren which seems a lot more likely and worth it than 10000 for your children. That's just insane to me. That couldn't be the motive. Okay, so let's go over the forensic evidence. Number one, in the Rudier home was the fact that a garage window was open with a cut screen. So this made it look like this was the potential entry exit point. Secondly, the weapon that cut the screen is questionable because there may have been some cross-contamination of screen material while they were dusting for fingerprints. So what happened is the forensic team dusted a bunch of things with the same brush that they dusted the screen 
width. This could cause it to look like some fragments of the screen were on the knife that was used to attack Darley and kill the boys. The reason why it matters is because you can't cut a knife from the outside to make entry into a home if the knife came from inside the house that's locked. Does that make sense? But more importantly than that, it never makes sense to me and it never will make sense to me. Why did the intruder use the Rudier's knife from their kitchen? Why did they not have their own weapon? And if it was an intruder, why would they use whatever to cut the screen to get into the home but grab a different weapon to kill the family with? I, I just think that's weird. Why would they not have their own weapon, right? And the third major thing about this case that was a really strange is that a sock had been found 75 yards away from the Rudier home in an alley by a sewer drain. Now, the sock belonged to Darren, and it had the blood of both boys on it. Oddly, this sock was just sort of blown off by investigators. They think that maybe Darley planted it. But here's the deal. The boys, um, technically, one of them were alive when the paramedics arrived. And so the time frame of Darley planting the socks, injuring herself, it all just seems unlikely. Plus, there's no evidence to support it. Darley clearly stepped through blood and had bloody footprints all over the kitchen, all over the crime scene, indicated that she'd ran been walking throughout the house and stuff so you would think there was evidence of her running out of the house and back into the house if she was dropping off this mysterious sock remember when I said Darren got a neighbor who was a nurse until paramedics got there I've always wondered if he dropped the sock like I don't know why I don't know how maybe it was stuck on him and he didn't know it I don't know but Maybe he did it or knew who did this and he planted the sock to help cover it up and maybe even help Darley out. I don't know. Oh, but the only way I can make sense of that sock being found outside is that it was only 75 yards away. 75 yards ain't shit. Someone could have put it there. Let's talk about Darley's injuries. Darley's throat injury, it was basically, there was three opinions about it. If I'm correct, it goes like this. The surgeon who performed on Darley says the wound was life-threatening. She had a slice across her neck and stabs on her arm. The doctor who worked on it said that it was within two millimeters of slicing through her carotid artery, which would have definitely been fatal. Another doctor, the doctor who worked on Darley's son and did not see Darley until after the surgery, made the statement in front of police, but not in front of Darley's surgeon, that it looked as if her wound could be self-inflicted because it also did not match the knife attack of her son whom that doctor worked on. It does seem a bit shady to me, but we, what we do know for one thing is that she had to use her opposite hand to have cut at this angle. I think she could have done it. Like, I think she's definitely is capable of doing a self-inflicted wound. I don't know. The issue with Darley's account that she fought her attacker on the couch while he sliced her throat was the fact that there was no blood on the couch around where she'd been lying, said investigators. However, there was blood drops from the kitchen sink to the living room that was theorized to be from Darley cutting her own throat over the kitchen sink. There is a lot of blood in this area. I mean, I would seriously go look at pictures of the crime scene for yourself because to me, it did look like there was a little bit of smearing indicating some cleanup, but just maybe instinctually for a second. 
I can tell you by the amount of blood and the time frame of the stabbing and police arriving, there was no serious cleanup attempt. They'll be like, oh, there was an attempt to clean up. No, it was a joke of an attempt to clean up. But there was a bunch of blood right there. And it does, to me, match the theory that this is where she cut her own throat and sliced her arm to the bone, especially because of where the blood drops are. So there's enough on the floor to make me think that's where her arm bled out a lot. And there's enough over the edge of the countertop and by the sink to make me think that's where she was leaning over and cut her throat. I know this sounds a bit crazy to some people, but, you know, killers can go to desperate lengths to cover up their own crimes. And the Killer Mom episode, one of the women literally stabbed herself. It's not in the realm of impossibility. So here's the thing. Her sons were stabbed with a lot of force. The knife went through their chest plate, ribs, vital organs. It went to the floor beneath their bodies all the way through. Why was she not met with the same force? Here is some of the blood evidence. There was blood cast on the back of Darley's shirt, which is believed to be from the knife dripping during the pullback each time she drew back the knife to stab her boys. The only bloody footprints or shoe prints, which there are none, there's only one set of bloody footprints in that crime scene, are of Darley. If Darley got up and chased her intruder out of the house, through the utility room, into the garage, why was there no blood or blood drop patterns to support this chase when we can see how much blood Darley lost from her neck? Another thing about the blood evidence was that the items that were knocked over and the glass that was broke only had blood underneath it. It's hard to understand how blood only got underneath things if Darley was actively bleeding and running around chasing out her attacker. It almost looked staged. Lastly, on the kitchen counter was a partial bloody fingerprint that was not a match to anybody. It was only a partial, and that will haunt this case forever. I I cannot believe some of the things that are treated just as no big deal. The sock has no explanation. The fingerprint has no explanation. But anyway... As I mentioned before, the Silly String video was serious, serious shit against Darlie. On top of that, Darlie's beauty enhancement, women did not like it. She had a boob job, and because her trial was moved to such a small town, they actually did not agree with any of that. They didn't agree with the sexy, flashy look at all. There was women on the jury that were like, oh my god, I'd never get a titty job. So her looks and the fact that she was living this fabulous life kind of beyond her financial situation, the jury was presented with the idea that Darlie's kids were getting in the way of her lifestyle. She was living the life, a house in the suburbs, boat, jewelry, plastic surgery, they were doing it all, but had they bitten off more than they could chew by keeping up with the Joneses? Apparently this is true. I don't think it wasn't anything they couldn't recover from, probably. I mean, he had just started making a bunch of money. But there was some tension and arguments over money, supposedly. Beyond the way Darley looked, um, how her finances were, and the speculation of who she was as a person, I can get past, right? Like, all that stuff can make someone seem a certain way, but I know people can do things financially that aren't the best ideas and not be murderers. I know lots of people with shitty finances, okay? And they ain't killing nobody but time. Now, 
what I can't get past is the reaction to her children dying on the living room floor. She did not attempt to render aid or comfort her children while they were dying. Okay. She did not even touch them. I am a mom and I cannot imagine. I can take everything else investigators say with a grain of salt about her behavior during the traumatic event because you never know how you'll react to trauma. But to not touch your dying child from an attack, that's hard. That's hard for me. The case rested and the jury deliberated February 1st, 1997. So the trial was only a month long and the jurors only deliberated for four hours before they came back with a guilty verdict. They watched that silly string video eight times. A couple days later, the sentencing hearing came and she was actually sentenced to death. Darley's husband and family never stopped supporting her. They remained married a really long time until 2011. It was because they decided it was time to move on. They'd been stuck in limbo for a long time. Darren actually did go on to get remarried and their son Drake has kept a relationship with his mom and visit her throughout the years. Oddly enough, you know, she's never been allowed to touch him ever again. She is ordered contactless visits behind glass as an inmate on death row. So I want to get into Darlie's appeals and the reason why she and others are fighting for her innocence. She even got the Innocence Project involved. So far, all her arguments and appeals have fallen through. Um, the appeals court have dismissed all of the claims that Darlie and her legal team have made, and they think that she deserves a new trial due to trial errors. Apparently, there was an abundant amount of trial errors. In hope of getting something to prove Darlie's innocence, they sent off DNA as soon as it was granted in 2008. And you know what's crazy is I could not find crap about this. It was like 11 freaking years before I could find an article about the damn DNA. Um, but they did get it ran through and there was a fingerprint that they ran and it came back with no matches still. Other than that, they really got nothing going for them forensically, appeal wise, right? Nothing that could really get an appeal. So it came to light after the fact that Darren actually was looking to hire someone to break into his home. He'd brought it up to Darley's dad. Of course, some people think that this is just something they hurried up and came up with a couple years into her fighting this case so that she could maybe win an appeal. Um, but the idea was that somebody would come in and steal everything and then hide it so that Darren could file a robbery, you know, an insurance claim, get the money, and then later he would go back and get all his stuff again. Once he hired someone to do this kind of insurance scam with a car, so similar ideas, I guess he had someone steal the car and I, he probably ended up selling it to like a chop shop or some shit like that. And he got the money for the car or maybe a new car, whatever. So I kind of doubt that theory. Like, I don't think this happened because Darren was looking for somebody to rob his house. I seriously doubt anybody else was ever in the house. One of the most defining moments for me was the knife belonged to the Rudier home. I didn't mention this earlier, but... The way out from the window seal or back of their home rather was not super convenient to use. So first of all, it's it was difficult to use the gate. I'm not sure why, but you'd have to mess with this gate. I don't know if it was heavy. I don't know what was wrong with it. Or you have to climb this really big fence. And giving the amount of blood at the scene, I just think it would have been really hard for them to get through the window and get through all that and not leave any trace of them, right? Or blood or anything behind. Um, and I think this happens so fast that police or neighbors 
would have definitely, I think, been able to see something suspicious during the neighborhood canvas. Um, this is a nice-ass suburb neighborhood. It's not an easy neighborhood to access, and it's unlikely that this was just the perfect random attack and nobody saw anything outside. Darley and her advocates have repeated that they have this proof or that proof and that they've made it seem several times like they might have something to actually aid in her release. But I'm telling you guys, I've looked into it. All that is hot air. I don't think she has anything really to pull. She's been on death row like 25, 26 years now, and I'm sure she's going to expire soon. Before I close this out, I want to tell you guys all the things I found about Darlie in this case. I love a deep dive, so let's let's do this. Darren worked at Western Sislin in Lubbock in 1984, and he worked with Darlie's mom, who <laughs> I've been dying to tell you guys this. Darlie's mom name is Darlie, okay? So she's named after her mom. Darlie's mom wanted Darren to meet her daughter, but Darren had a girlfriend at the time, and he declined the prospect of dating Darlie. But then Mother's Day, 1985, Darlie came in to the restaurant and Darren met her. And I'm sure she came to see her mom or like have lunch with her for Mother's Day or something like that. But Darren was instantly smitten. He like forgot about his girlfriend from Texas Tech. Darren was 17 and Darlie was 15 and they fell head over heels hard in love. Darren got into a different line of work. He actually decided to go to video technology school while Darlie stayed at home still living with her mom working at McDonald's. Darren was busting his ass living hand to mouth trying to do school working part time and then in October of 1987 he actually finished school and he was one of 12 kids I guess that actually started and finished the class size was originally 172. So Darren and Darlie definitely started at the bottom of the pole. They started off in like a 250 or something dollar bug infested apartment that they just had to make work because they were broke. If I have the story right, he worked with Darlie at a company uh, making electronic circuit boards or something in that realm. And he worked there for a year before he proposed to the guys in charge that they could actually buy these boards they were buying from a third-party company. They could actually buy them cheaper from him. And they said, okay, let's do it. So he got a $7,000 loan for equipment to accomplish this, but the machine was a flop and like the whole plan fell through. Darley actually worked at the same company that he worked at um, leading up to this deal and she'd worked there for about eight months and she learned part of the circuit board uh, procedure and how to press them and so that later they could do that themselves together and they wouldn't need shit from anybody and they actually did it and they did it well in 1989 they got a nice little starter suburb house it's not the house that this crime took place in then Darley got pregnant with their first child and like life really began to blossom for them they operated out of a home office with the side business but they each still worked at the company I think I, I think Darley still worked at the company with Darren she may have became a homemaker at that time though but Darren did study the ins and outs of the company that he was working for. So they were able to really accomplish this circuit board side business successfully together. And they made really good money. It was a high profit margin. They also had champagne taste though. And so I think they would kind of, they were said to have spent money, get pretty high on their credit limits and stuff like that. So this is kind of how Darlie got the reputation she got. Cause for one, she was extremely attractive and people would complain that she dressed really sexy 
Um, I hate to even repeat that because sexy is such a personal definition and I don't know what some people really define as sexy, but I don't ever see an issue with people really dressing sexy. I have certain features that I try to bring out or enhance. I think everybody does and not everyone has physical things that they try to highlight, but we all have highlighted marketable traits, right? Unfortunately, this aspect of Darlie's personality, um, is not likable to a lot of people. So after four years of working out of the home office and Darren still working at the company, he quit and they got an actual space for their business. And in 1991, they did that and they had their second child. Darlie got her boob job. Things were going great. In 1993, they actually bought their big house, the big suburban home, which was like 122 thousand something dollar loan um he said to have reported over 250,000 to the IRS in 1995 100,000 of that he which paid himself from their business this was a year prior to the crime so you know they were doing pretty good something really weird also is they did little things to make side money and Darley got like a handful of Persian cats as a way to make money I don't know I thought that was strange but I guess she loved cats and oh that's kind of cool a lot of times when people talk about the Rudier family, they're like, the Rudiers were spending too much money. They bought a boat. And, um, you know, their income like doubled. Why, what's wrong with them buying a new house and a boat? I don't understand. The boat was said to have been an investment too, by the way. I just wanted to outline all these factors for people really curious about the life that this couple had. And I think the rumors kind of take away from the things that we do know about the crime scene and that Darlie said things that do not match up and she really does look guilty. So I think that we should just, uh, so I want to unpack these facts so that we can quit letting it cloud over the fact that she does look pretty guilty. So I think it's worth mentioning that Darlie really wanted a baby girl in 1995, but she had a miscarriage and then she got pregnant and had baby Drake in October of 95. So she got hit really hard with postpartum. She even wrote about suicide in her journal. And one day she called her husband home because she felt so heavy with depression and suicide. So that is how we got from meeting as teenagers to building a successful business to Darlie is on death row for murder. At the end of the day, Darlie Rudier was found guilty and sentenced to death on completely circumstantial evidence. Although I do think the evidence was circumstantial and I sometimes have a hard time believing anybody should be sentenced to death for circumstantial evidence. I mean, the, the jury decided. So next week, I'm actually going to cover someone who we know is guilty and got off scotch-free for a similar circumstantial crime. Okay, anyway, thank you guys so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. I will catch you next week. Bye.